Hello, my lovely people, and welcome to The Fletcher Files, a Murder, She Wrote podcast with your host, Monty. (laughs) This week, we will be starting season three. Can you believe it? So this starts off with actually a two-parter, Death Stalks the Big Top. So this week, we will be discussing part one, and next week, we will be discussing part two. And so I actually watched only part one this time around, so I wouldn't get the two episodes confused. So lucky you guys, right? (laughs) But no, I do enjoy watching both of these episodes. So this one was a fun one. There will be ranting because of course there will be. (laughs) Okay, so let's get into it. So Death Stalks the Big Top Part 1 first aired September 28th, 1986, Season 3, Episode 1. And the IMDb summary reads, When Jessica's niece receives a silver leprechaun from someone who has been presumed dead for years, Jessica decides to hunt down the mysterious gift giver from beyond the grave. Spooky, right? Yeah, no, not at all. This involves a circus, so (laughs) even though I have issues with clowns, but that's personal. That's personal. Let's move on. (laughs) Let's start with the returners. We have a few. Then we'll go over all of the characters and get right into the story. So returners. First, we have Greg Henry. We will recognize him as Barry Bristol from Broadway Malady, also known as Broadway Milady. That's incorrect, but I like it. So <laughs> in this episode, he is Sheriff Lynn Childs. We then have Lee Purcell, and we will recognize her as Joanna Benson from A Lady in the Lake. And in this episode, well, these episodes, this is for both part one and part two. She is Maylene Sutter. We then have Mark Shira, and we will recognize him as Thor Danzinger, one of the best names in this series, from Capital Offense. In this episode, well, these episodes, he will be playing Raymond Carmody. And finally, we have Robin Bach. We will recognize him from two previous episodes, one as the Mater D in Birds of a Feather, and as Ellsworth Buffum from Joshua Peabody Died Here, possibly. (laughs) In this episode, he plays Mark, the assistant to Maria Morgana. Now, let's get into all of the characters. So we have Edgar Carmody, Carl Schulman, Neil Fletcher, Preston Bartholomew, Carol Bannister, Mayor Powers, Charlie McCullum, Constance Fletcher, Brad Keneally, Maria Morgana, Sheriff Lynn Childs, Hank Sutter, Maylene Sutter, Raymond Carmody, Katie McCullum, Daniela Morgana Carmody, Say that three times fast, right? (laughs) Harry Kingman and Aubrey Bannister, Bert and Mark. Okay. (laughs) On to the show, right? (laughs) So we open up with a delivery of champagne at a beautiful mansion. We find out that this is in or near DC. So... They never specify where, but we have some clues later on that this is, I'm guessing, outside D.C. proper, meaning not in the middle of the city. And once we go into the house, we meet Carol, who is being fitted for her wedding dress, and her grandmother, Constance, who is just the quintessential, just like, wealthy, unhappy, miserable, thinks she's better than everyone else, completely controlling, 
person. Like that's that's who she is. I don't like her from jump and that's that on that, right? But anyway, so Carol is so excited. She loves her dress, but her grandmother's like, I will reserve my comments for the final fitting. Now it looks like they're putting up chairs and everything like the wedding is later today or even tomorrow, but apparently not. The wedding is in three days. And so the designer is like, well, this is the final fitting. And Constance is like, 10 a.m. on Thursday will be the final fitting and I will give my comments at that time. So this is at least three days before the wedding. And I understand like a final fitting, you should not be having it the day before or definitely not the day of your wedding. But my question is, why are they putting these chairs out? Like, is there not supposed to be rain or wind or anything? Like, weather is not a thing in D.C.? I have no idea what month this is. But D.C. is on the East Coast, the Northeast Coast still, right? Maybe Mid-East Coast, right? (laughs) And it has weather. D.C. has seasons. So... I was a bit confused that the wedding is that many days off and it's going to be at their house in their backyard and they're doing the full setup of the chairs and the gazebo, et cetera, et cetera. So, all right, that's a choice. So as they're talking, Carol's mother comes in, Aubrey, and she's like, oh, is this the the handkerchief that you were talking about? And Constance is like, yes, that's the one. So Aubrey's like, what? who seems like a very nervous person, though? A very nervous person, but I think it's her mom makes her nervous, which is terrible. That's really a horrible relationship for you. Anyway, so <laughs> she then says, the mother says, well, okay, that's perfect. So now we have something borrowed. The only thing we need now is something old. And Constance is like, whoever right, is going to provide her silk gloves that she wore when she got married. And so Carol's like, no, I am wearing grandfather's lodge ring. To which Constance is like, um, no, he's been dead for 10 years. Get over it. My thing is, you are a terrible human being. Your husband, the father of your adult daughter, the grandfather of your one and only granddaughter died. And we find out later how he died. And you're like, get over it. Okay, you're getting married. We have lots and lots of money. We've invited all of these important political people to this wedding. Okay, get over it. Don't think about your grandfather. He's dead. Okay, move on. I'm like, wow. You are the worst of people. You really are. So before Carol gets an opportunity to argue her point, Constance dismisses her basically. And Aubrey notices that outside Jessica has arrived. So she's very excited. Constance is like, oh, she's only three days early. The fact that she came at all and she honestly is the most successful family member any of you have. Okay. Now, clearly Neil did well because he afforded them this lifestyle even after his death. But the fact is, Constance didn't work for any of this. Okay. Jessica is her own person. She was able to recover after the death of her husband and you know, do something that she didn't know that she loved, but turns out that she loves writing mystery novels and she's able to travel the world and she's found fame in this. And you are just an evil, evil, wealthy woman. And only because your husband provided for you. So you can miss me with that. Okay. So they meet Jessica downstairs, but before they get down there, Howard, who is Aubrey's husband and Constance's son-in-law and Carol's father, right? He is actually a decent human being, right? 
he is. And he is extremely happy to see Jessica. He is not the snobbish, elitist type like his mother-in-law and by design, his wife, right? He is closer in personality to his daughter, but he can't be as rebellious. He's kind of like stuck in this, but Carol has the opportunity to get out, right? (laughs) Like shake these people off as best as she can. But he's super excited to see Jessica. And we find out a few things about Frank in this scene. We find out that Frank and Neil are brothers. That's where the Fletchers come from, right? And that the last time Jessica was there was five years ago, just before Frank died. So we know at this point in time, Frank has been dead for a little less than five years. However, we don't know what he died from. I don't think in the series we ever find out, which is fine. So the next scene, Jessica is speaking with Carol because she is not tired. She doesn't want to freshen up or anything. She wants to see Carol because that's the only reason she came was for Carol. Definitely not for Constance. If it was up to her, she would have, Jessica definitely wouldn't have come. Aubrey, she wouldn't have come for her. Howard, she would have come for because she does have love and respect for him. But Carol, and we find out how close they are uh, in this scene. So Carol tells Jessica that she is so happy that she's there. And Jessica's like, I would not have missed this wedding for the world. And I truly believe that, I truly believe that. But Carol is like, it's all thanks to you because you convinced me to wait to get married. I was ready to get married and get out of here as soon as possible. And Jessica's like, yeah, all those late night calls to Cabot Cove. And that that's really great that Jessica was there for her because she couldn't call on her mother. She couldn't call on her grandmother for sure. It doesn't seem like she has friends that aren't like her mother and her grandmother, just in that society, you know, wealthy, you get set up by your parents to continue the line of wealth, right? So Carol is grateful that she waited and she found Clay, right? And that her grandmother doesn't like him, but her father, Howard, adores him which is a great sign for all of us. Howard is the only normal person other than Carol. And if Carol found someone that her father can relate to and is like, son, you have the chance that I did not have because your wife wants to get away from these people. (laughs) My wife did not. So... (laughs) It's good. It's a good sign that her father, who's normal, likes, adores Clay, not just likes, adores Clay. So as they're speaking, uh, a package arrives and Carol opens it up. She's like, wedding gifts have been coming nonstop. And it is a silver leprechaun. And so she is just dumbfounded. She's like, oh my God, Jessica, look at this. This is from grandfather. And Jessica's like, uh, sweetheart, no, 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 he's dead. He's dead. No, 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 no. And then Carol proceeds to explain why it has to be him. She says when she was a young girl that her grandfather said that when she got married, a leprechaun would come to her wedding for good luck and that he made her keep it a secret. It was just between the two of them. Nobody else knew, so it had to be him. And Jessica's like, but he's dead, or so we think. <laughs> so Carol's like, I don't believe he's dead, and neither do you. And she's like, well, you know, Frank never believed. He was never comfortable with the fact that his brother died in that boating accident, but... Uh, you know what? Looking at the postage stamp, it says Catlinburg, Arkansas. That's a start. 
you know what? I'm three days early for this wedding. I'm going to go out there and see what I can find out. Either way, I'll be back for your wedding. Don't you worry. Your aunt is on the job. Okay. (laughs) That's the type of aunt you want. You want someone who is going to go and search for your presumed dead grandfather and protect you from your terrible mother and grandmother. That is what she's going to do. And kudos to Jessica for being that amazing aunt. So the next scene, we are at a circus and we have Carl. Now, we saw a portrait of Neil and Jessica says, I said, I always love that portrait because there's so much of Frank in it, right? So because they're brothers, right? So we see what Neil looks like. Now we're at a circus and there's an older man putting on makeup for clown makeup, that is. And he's speaking with a young man named Charlie. And this is clearly Neil, but he goes by Carl. So Neil is in fact alive, right? We don't know how he got here, but we know that he's alive at this circus. And so Carl is asking Charlie if Brad has made any headway with Charlie's mother. And Charlie's like, oh, he hasn't, but he's really trying. So, you know, I'm glad that Charlie likes Brad. So if things work out, you know, he's not, he's protective of his mother, but not to the point that no men can approach her. He really likes Brad and he really likes Brad for his mother. So this is good. This is, she doesn't have to live a celibate life for the rest of her life because her son just can't imagine her with anyone other than his father. Uh, Charlie's heart is open to her and Brad getting together. And you know what? We haven't met Brad yet or his mother, but I'm rooting for them as well. (laughs) Just because, right? So speaking of Charlie's mother, she comes up And she's like, yeah, what's going on? And Carl was like, I was just thinking, like, isn't it time for Charlie's geography lesson? And Katie was like, it's actually past his time for his geography lesson. And Charlie's like, but mom, like, I'm having a conversation here with Blinky the Clown. And Katie's like, "Um, do you want me to send you to school? Do you want the government to come and get you and make you go to school? Is that what you want to do? He's like, oh, see, what had happened is no. um, I am going to go and study geography immediately. (laughs) Thanks, mom. Bye. So, you know, Carl and Katie start to talk. And Carl is like, hey, you need to find somebody. (laughs) Like, Charlie needs a daddy. I ain't it. I am a very nice old man, but uh, you need somebody young. Now, he ain't say Brad. He could have slipped Brad's name in there. Um, But Katie's like, I'm not ready for that yet. But thank you. So the next scene, Katie is walking out of the circus tent and Brad comes up to her and says, you know, we found this really great lake not too far away and I'm going to take Charlie fishing in the morning it would be great if you would come with us. And Katie says, oh, you know, I'd like to, but I have to rehearse this new move. And she is a high wire walker. Like she does tricks and everything up there. So yes, it's extremely important that she practices for sure. But, you know, Brad is stepping out and asking her out with her son too. Like, so it's not even just a one-on-one date. It's a date with her son there too because he's developed a relationship with the son which is always great but she isn't ready yet so she comes up with an excuse which is a valid excuse don't get me wrong for why she can't go so Katie walks off and Hank Sutter comes up to Brad and he says son she's out of your league And Brad's like, oh, that makes two of us, old man. I'm like, gross. Hank makes some other comments and the scene ends. So the next scene, we're in Catlinburg. 
Arkansas, and Jessica is speaking with a store owner about if he sold a silver leprechaun. And she's like, I went to two other stores and they said they never had any. And so the store owner's like, yeah, well, you can't buy here either because I sold one about a week ago to this man. And we find out that it was a stranger, that he came in about three different times before he actually purchased it. And that this person was a stranger. They were not a resident. So Jessica walks out and she sees a poster for the Carmody Family Circus. And so it says from A date to B date, it might've said August, like maybe we're in August I don't or June. I don't remember. I honestly don't remember what year was on that sign. I guess we'll get to it in the second part of this when I watch that. But she then sees a person walking down the street. She asks them, hey, do you know about the circus? And he's like, oh, you just missed it. They left on Sunday. And she says, by any chance, do you know where they went? We don't hear his response, but we can assume that he told her because the next scene, she is at the Carmody Family Circus. So the next scene, we are at the circus and Katie is performing on the high wire. And this is actually during a performance in front of an audience. And Edgar and Preston, now Preston is the ringmaster. And Edgar, who is the owner of Carmody Family Circus, is saying, this is amazing turnout. I think this is going to turn our financial situation around if we, you know, have this type of audience. Kingman could never. And Preston is super negative. And he's like, ah, well, Kingman shows have better turnouts regularly. So this is not really gonna be much. He obviously skipped this town for a reason, but we can't make like two full shows out of the people who are in this town. Like just super negative. And I don't like him or his mustache. Now, listen, I'm gonna take a little step aside. Now his mustache looks fake, but I believe it's real which is even worse, okay? (laughs) I thought it was part of a disguise, but I think looking at his IMDb page, that I think that's his real mustache. It it is just oddly situated on his face. (laughs) Sorry to that man. Anyway, so we're then in the trailer and Ray, who is Edgar's son, is on the phone And he's speaking with a doctor, but we don't hear the other side of the conversation and we really don't get a resolution. While he's on the phone, Daniela, his wife, walks into the trailer and he finishes out the conversation quickly and hangs up and starts talking about circus business. And Daniela is like, you know, honestly, my mom is offering you a $100,000 a year job. And Ray is like, listen, I am not a dress peddler. And Danielle is like, what are you then? And he's like, listen, this is my family business, okay? And she does not understand why he is not willing to leave his father and the struggling family business to make a lot of money working for her controlling mother, a lot of controlling mothers in this, this, these two episodes, right? As a, a CEO, somebody definitely an executive, right? And she just does not understand why he would want to do that. Stay with his father as opposed to go work for her mother. And I'm like, what type of person are you? Okay, you're his wife. Okay, and you don't understand why he would want to support his father in the family business as opposed to, which he grew up in, right? So they've had this circus for many, many years. So he grew up around these people, helping his father, and he's entrenched in this business. And you married him knowing this right? And you're surprised that he doesn't want to work for, and we'll meet her mother and her mother is terrible. 
that he doesn't want to work under her thumb as one of her executives doing something that he does not want to do. Ma'am, what? So he is supposed to leave his father in a struggling business to what? To go and make money and leave his father destitute? What type of person are you to even suggest that? Because clearly his father is not going to sell the circus. And him saying, you know what? I'm going to go with my wife and I'm going to get some job that I don't want at all. And maybe that is going to force him to sell the circus. It's not. He's just going to struggle more. And that's what she doesn't seem to understand. And that makes her just as bad as her mother, actually, that eventually, spoiler, she does come around to understand why he wants to do this and then supports her husband in his commitment to working with his father and making this circus run well and into the future. But right now, right now, she is being delusional that he is supposed to leave his father destitute, struggling to go and make a lot of money to what take care of her so she doesn't have to follow him around in these trailers. Girl, no. No, I'm glad she comes around because I would have been like, get rid of her immediately. Because if she doesn't understand that, she ain't the one. But she comes around, so it's all right. It's all right. We'll just get through this tough time now. (laughs) But she comes around. So we then see outside at the ticket booth, which is not really a ticket booth, but you know what I mean. And Jessica approaches and she's speaking with the ticket lady who's like, listen, the show is almost over. And Jessica's like, well, I'm sure there's still a lot to see. So she does sell her a ticket. And Jessica asks like, hey, um, do you recognize this guy? And she has an old picture of Neil. Now it's clearly a headshot. It is clearly a professional (laughs) headshot and he looks great in it. So, and he looks like himself. So just younger, but not that much younger, to be honest, probably he doesn't even look 10 years older because that picture at best would have been 10 years ago. But the woman recognizes him and says, oh, that could be Carl, but like that's a younger version of him. And Jessica says, Carl, to which the ticket lady's back, you know, goes up and she's like, oh, wait, I think I've said too much. You know, maybe he doesn't want to be found. So she's like, yeah, I can't tell. I can't tell. You know, there's, I got a lot of stuff to do. I can't tell. My eyesight's bad. You know, whatever. So, excuse me, ma'am. And mind you, there's nobody else there trying to buy a ticket. So she has nothing else to do. But Jessica gives her that and it's like, okay, now I have a name. So the next scene, we are at the trailers and Daniela is exiting a trailer and Hank is just hanging around out there. What we find out is that at some point, Daniela and Hank had an affair. And Hank is like, it's not over until I say it's over, which he is super aggressive and abusive. And honestly, he should have been let go a long time ago. Let's just put that out there. Anyway, So Daniela, he tries to force himself on her and she's able to pull away and she picks up a hammer and she's like, if you ever touch me again, I'll kill you. And so he's like, oh, what do you, mind you, his shirt is like all the way open. Okay. (laughs) All the buttons are open. He's like, oh, you're not going to hurt Hank, are you, honey? And she's like, no, I'm not. I think what I'm going to do is tell my husband before you do and he'll kill you. Now, this gave Hank some pause because he his smile kind of fell a bit when she said that. Now, he is much bigger than Ray. However, if Ray gets upset enough, he's going to tell Edgar and Edgar is going to fire Hank and... I don't, he has a mission that he has to complete, which we'll find out in the second episode. So he can't risk getting fired. I think that's more of a concern versus him actually getting hurt by Ray. Because I'm like, I, I don't know, Ray maybe may have got a bat and come up behind him and work him over. 
or something like that. So don't sleep on Ray just because he's smaller. He should be concerned about that as well. So the next scene, we are on the circus grounds still. And Jessica is asking around and she finds Edgar Carmody, the owner of the circus. And she asks about a guy named Carl. She says that I'm looking for my brother-in-law. Here's a picture of him. His name is Neil, but I think he's going by Carl. And Edgar recognizes Neil slash Carl, but he does not know who Jessica is or why she's looking for him or if he wants to be found, that being Neil slash Carl wants to be found by her. So Edgar thinks quick and he's like, you know, people come and go. I did have a guy named Carl Benson, but he was like 20 years younger than the guy in the picture. And even if, you know, he left about a month ago anyway. So, uh, you know, I'm sorry, I can't help you. Uh, Brad, hey, hey, can you show Mrs. Fletcher to the exit? I'm like, she bought a whole ticket. She bought a whole ticket. And you talking about she got to leave? So Brad comes up and he's like, hey, ma'am. And she's like, I think I just got the bums rush. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) But I'll find my own way out. So thank you. So the next scene, it's after the show. Preston and Maylene are in street clothes talking to each other. And Preston, again, being negative, is like, it would take six months of crowds like we had tonight to even break even. And... Maylene is like, it's going to be all right. It's going to be all right. Like, honestly, it's fine. Hank then approaches them and says, hey, don't wait up. I got to check on whatever, whatever. To which Maylene says, who is it this time? Who's the lucky lady this time? Hank then proceeds to grab her face in front of Preston and is like threatening her. And Preston jumps up. And it's like, what are you doing? Leave her alone, you know, whatever. And Hank then proceeds while grabbing her face to threaten Preston that he's going to beat him up. And Maylene like shrugs him off and it's like, go do whatever you're going to do. And he walks off. I'm like, I am scared for her because if he is willing to do this in public and nobody is stopping this. Like Preston said something, but he didn't, he then backed down. Um, I don't know what happens in private. I'm sure she's probably on the low, happy that he's somebody else's problem most nights, but that is still her husband. Like they're actually married. So, you know, mm, yikes. So the next scene, we're at the McCallum trailer with Charlie and Katie. And Katie is doing state capital drills with Charlie. And he's doing an excellent job. She's so excited. He's so excited. I like this scene to see them together like this. So he's about to go to sleep. She is fixing his comforter and finds a baseball bat (laughs) in his bed. And he's like, oh, you know, I really worked out with it today and it needs a soft place to sleep. I'm like, okay, that's really random that you're sleeping with your baseball bat, but okay. She's like, whatever, fine. So she goes to set the alarm clock so that Charlie can get up early enough to get ready to go fishing with Brad. And Charlie's like, I really wish you would come with us. And... Katie says, well, you know, honestly, I have to rehearse. I have to practice. That's my job. And so Charlie's like, he doesn't say anything. He looks disappointed. And Katie recognizes this. And she's like, listen, I'm not ready to replace your father yet. Okay. But when I am, then it's definitely going to be someone like Brad. I'm like, what about Brad? Okay. Not like Brad. What about Brad? So (laughs) this makes Charlie happy. Then there's a knock on the door. And so Katie goes, she opens it. And she's like, I told you to get away from here. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I'm sorry. What she read about that trailer? Um, Hank was 
like trying to get something started. I'm like, for one, her son is right in that trailer. So nothing was really going to happen in their trailer. She's like, I'm not interested. And he's like, that's not what I, the image that I got when I convinced Edgar to hire you after you quit Kingman's or were you fired? To which Katie was like, you know, my husband died due to faulty rigging that you were supposed to check on. So I'm assuming that's why she left Kingman because they were not doing what they needed to do and she does a very dangerous act. So your husband died based on their fault. I'm sure they didn't pay her anything. She probably didn't have life insurance or whatever. So yeah, I would have left too. But Hank is trying to say, oh, you were fired and I was able to get you another job. And she's like, no, that's not what happened. And Hank then tries to force himself on her. He is a terror. He is a terror and needs to be getting gotten rid of, which happens soon enough. So there's that. <laughs> Spoiler. Charlie then hears the struggle between the two of them and comes out with a bat. And Hank grabs the bat away from him, makes some threats, and is like, I'll give it back to you when you're a man enough to get it from me. It's like, matter of fact, I'll give it back. I'll hold on to it until someone comes and asks for it real nice. Like, I'm like, you are so disgusting of a person. Like, not even trash, just beyond trash, just disgusting person. So he then walks off with Charlie's bat. The next day in the morning, Jessica arrives in full disguise, okay, in full disguise and an accent, okay? I don't know what Southern state that's supposed to be from, but somewhere south of the Mason-Dixon line and a touch of Cabot Cove, okay? I don't know where that accent came from, Jessica. I don't know. And she approaches Maylene and she asks about Carl. She says, I own a store and Carl purchased some items but four of those items did not make it into his bag. And Maylene was like, oh my goodness, that is so nice of you to come all the way out here this early in the morning to bring him the stuff that he accidentally left. So she said, you must mean Carl Schulman. His trailer is, and she describes the trailer. So the camera then cuts to Edgar and Carl talking by the trailers and Edgar's like, hey, you know, there was a woman named Jessica. There was a woman named Fletcher, he says, that was looking for you the other day, yesterday. And Carl says, Constance? And Edgar's like, no, 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 Jessica? He's like, oh, wow. And so he's like, I think I made a mistake. I sent a gift to my, a wedding gift to my granddaughter, but I never thought that she would send Jessica Fletcher for <laughs> looking for me. And so Edgar was like, well, I hope I was right in, you know, getting rid of her. And he's like, no, 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 it's fine. He then sees, this is Carl then slash Neil, right? Sees Jessica looking the other direction. So he grabs Edgar and walks behind a trailer and says, listen, she's super persistent, right? But I'm not ready to see her yet. And so Edgar's like, oh, you know, like I'll get rid of her for good. And Carl is like, but do it nicely. He's like, okay. So Edgar goes and walks over to Jessica and she's like, oh, hey, yeah. So you forgot to tell me about Carl Schulman. To which Edgar says, oh yeah, I forgot. I forgot about him. And then I remembered, but you know what? Some guys took him into town last night. So he's gone too. Sorry about that. And as Jessica's like, uh, okay, that really is a problem. Katie comes running up to Edgar and is like, you gotta come, you gotta come. It's Hank Sutter. So they all go. So Jessica goes as well. And they find Hank dead and bloody in the elephant area. The next scene, we have the sheriff and the mayor. And I'm going to just say this. The mayor is a jerk and he is the worst part 
of these episodes. And that is including Constance as a terrible person, Hank as a disgusting person, um, Maria Morgana as a terrible person. Daniela starts off terrible, but she works through that and becomes a good person. But even with them, even with them, and Preston and his terrible mustache, the mayor is the most annoying and frustrating person. So scenes that he are, that he's in are gonna not include what he says because I just cannot stand him. So there's your disclaimer, okay? Anyway, so we find out in this scene, the sheriff is okay. The sheriff is okay though. We find out from Edgar that Charlie, Katie's son, and Brad are unaccounted for because they went fishing first thing in the morning. We also have Jessica on the scene and she points out that there is no blood on the elephant's feet. Now, they believed that he had been trampled by the elephants. However, if there's no blood on their feet, then it could not have been that. And Jessica is like, that means that he was beaten to death. The sheriff says there's no murder weapon found. So Jessica suggests that the murderer took the weapon with him or her, which makes sense. The mayor, goodness. Anyway, he is taking charge of this. My question is, where is the prosecutor? Where is the district attorney? Where is the state's attorney? Where is a prosecutor? Where is the attorney general? Somebody, please. Why is the mayor investigating this as if he's a prosecutor? He's not. He is not. He has no power whatsoever in the office of a mayor to investigate a crime. Where is the prosecutor? This is outrageous. Like, oh my goodness. So the next scene we have Maylene and Katie And we find out a few things that have already happened before the death of Hank. So a tiger got loose, a set of bleachers caught on fire, and the main tent pole splintered. So Maylene is like, this is evil, okay? Like, I don't know what we're doing wrong, but this ain't right. But this is, mm mm-mm, no. And Katie's like, that seems like a lot. Like, I, I don't know about evil. Like, I understand that it's terrible that your husband died. And she's like, uh, wait a second. No, I don't care about that man. <laughs> okay. She's like, I'm free. I'm free to leave. I'm glad he's dead. I'm free. Don't take this the wrong way. I'm getting out of this place with a smile on my face. Okay. <laughs> I like, honestly... I don't know why Maylene didn't kill him herself. I really don't know why she didn't. I guess, spoiler alert, question mark. Maylene is not the murderer, nor do I think she was ever considered a suspect. But I'm surprised that she did not, like, I don't know, smother him in his sleep or something. <laughs> I don't know, wait till he get drunk and smother him. Do not do that. That is murder. Do, do not do that in real life. Don't do that. But... In the Murder, She Wrote universe, that would have been appropriate in this situation, considering how disgusting of a person Hank was to everybody. And Maylene brings that up. She's like, now you ain't got to worry about him either. I know he was trying to get after you and you didn't want nothing to do with him. You, You are safe now. We are all safe, which is true. I'm also glad that Hank is dead. So the next scene, we are in the tent and the mayor is interrogating Jessica. He's a jerk and an idiot. So we're moving on to the next scene. (laughs) Okay. And we're outside. Brad and Charlie are returning from fishing. They had no luck. And Edgar approaches them to tell them that Hank has been beaten to death and that the police want to speak with Brad. And technically, Charlie, he's a young man, maybe he's like 12 or something, I feel, but they still want to talk to him probably because he was allegedly with Brad. So to make sure that their stories match as opposed to Charlie being a suspect in the murder. So the next scene, we are in Edgar's trailer with Edgar, Ray, and Daniela. 
And they're discussing like how to move forward because the mayor has shut them down. And Edgar's like, you know what? Keep booking shows in other towns and we'll use that money we get from pre-sold tickets to float us during the time that we're shut down here. Daniela makes some comment that gets a side eye from Ray and Edgar gets up and leaves. So yeah, she does get better. So we just have to get through this tough time. The next scene we have Jessica, Brad, and Charlie. And Jessica notices on Brad's knuckles, there are injuries. So she takes note of that. There's nothing else revelatory in this scene other than she gets to meet Charlie. So the next scene, we are in Carl's trailer and the mayor and the deputy sheriff and a deputy sheriff is in there, not the sheriff. And the deputy sheriff mentions that one of the juggling pins is missing. The mayor says, I noticed that as soon as I walked in. I'm like, okay, yeah. And the deputy sheriff says, well, you could really beat a man badly with one of those things. And the mayor looks up and has, I guess, some level of epiphany. The next scene, we are at a bus station. People are boarding a bus. A police car comes up and Carl tries to make a run for it, but he is not that fast. He has some injury. We'll find out more details in the second half. And he is placed under arrest. So the next scene, we are at the Ozark Inn and Jessica is on the phone trying to get in touch with someone. While she's on the phone in the lobby, because the phone in her room does not work, we meet Maria Morgana and her secretary, Mark. They approach Bert, the hotel clerk, who is reading a magazine and does not notice them come in. I'm sure there's probably a bell or whatnot, but Mark addresses him and he kind of jumps and is like, oh, hey, hey, I didn't notice there were people standing here. My bad. How can I help you? So Mark says that, yes, we reserved a suite or a row of suites, however he put it. And or Maria says that. And Mark is like, have your boy bring up her luggage To which Bert was like, one, we don't have any suites here. Two, we don't have a boy to bring up your luggage. I have a double with a bath. Okay, and he turns around the registry for her to sign in. And Mark is like, do you know who she is? She blah, blah, blah. And Bert was like, okay, that's great. I have a double with a bath. I don't have a suite. And so Maria's like, you know, tries to throw her her weight around. And Bert is not impressed. He's like, I have one double with a bath. Do you want it? (laughs) And they take it and they take it because that's the only place to stay, apparently. And Bert was not intimidated. But the fact is, what was he going to do? Have her stay at his house? He had a double with a bath. They don't even have suites there. It's a motel, not even a hotel. It's a motel inn, okay? The front door is outside, okay? You don't walk through an indoor hallway and unlock your door. You walk out your front door of your room and that's the parking lot, okay? This is not some fine establishment as opposed to the hotel that... Jessica and Professor, what's his last name? Caulfield? (laughs) That's the, in Powder Keg. How luxurious that hotel was in that small town. This ain't it. This, mm -mm, this ain't it. That's not where you're staying. No, they got a motel and that's the best you're going to get. Take that double with a bath and, and be happy about it. All right. Make sure you pay cash up front though. Okay. So Jessica finally gets through to Andrew. We don't know who that is, but she says, yes, I'm going to need a a private investigator to find a lost relative and probably a really good defense attorney as well. At this point, a delivery man walks in and says, hey, you know, 
they arrested that guy's murderer at the bus depot in Groverton, I think he said. So now Jessica's on the phone. She's like, oh my God. And the scene ends. The next scene, we're at the sheriff's office and the sheriff is letting Jessica into the cell where Carl is. He turns around, of course, it's Neil. They are both overcome with emotion. And Neil is like, it was the leprechaun, wasn't it? (laughs) She nods like, yeah, it was. He tells her that he tries to get Washington papers and this being Washington DC papers. And when he saw the announcement, he knew that he had to send something to his granddaughter. He couldn't let the wedding pass without, you know, reaching out to her somehow, some way. And so Jessica was like, you know what? You never fooled Frank. He did not believe that you were dead. And Neil was like, when Frank died, that that was the hardest thing for me. And he tells her he was at the funeral. He's like, oh, I was way off on the side so no one could see me. And I was in disguise probably. And after everyone left, he left flowers at the grave. And Jessica says, oh, the yellow roses, I should have known. And she sits down and has him sit down and says, you have to explain to me what happened. So Neil says, I couldn't take it anymore. A cold and grasping wife, a foolish and vacuous daughter. I didn't want to spend the rest of my life like that. I wanted to enjoy whatever time I had left. And Jessica's like, but why didn't you get a divorce? I'm like, you know, that's always an option. But he's like, no, no, no. I wanted to cut everything off immediately and permanently. I did not want any ties to them. So I took my boat out. I blew it up. I had previously cashed out my life insurance a few weeks before. So Constance and Aubrey got everything else. And that's all they wanted from me anyway. You know, they didn't care if he was alive or dead as long as they had his money and the status that came with it, which is true because if his wife is going to say, don't even think about your grandfather, he's dead. He's been dead for 10 years, that she was a cold and grasping wife who was only with him for the status that she would get as a wealthy woman. And now she didn't even have to deal with him because he was dead. He was out of the picture. So she's out here living her best cruel evil life, you know? So um, Neil is like, listen, we got to keep this between the two of us. I cannot go back there. Like, I can't. I had to come up with a new name and a new life. And I've been traveling with this circus for these past 10 years. I cannot go back. They cannot know I'm alive. You know, of course, except for his granddaughter. She is the only one, the only one. So Jessica's like, okay, what are we going to do about getting you out of jail? Because you are currently under arrest, which is super important, more important than Constance. Ain't nobody worried about no Constance or no Aubrey right now. You are in jail for murder. Okay, what are we going to do about that? And he's like, let it lay. She's like, what are you talking about? How am I going to let it lay? You can go to prison forever for something that I do not believe you committed. And she's like, no, 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 just leave it alone. I'll be fine. Don't worry about it. The mayor comes in. He's a jerk and an idiot. So we're not even going to discuss that. Jessica is like, you think I'm going to let this innocent man be railroaded? You're wrong. You're wrong. And she leaves. (laughs) Okay. Don't mess with Jessica or her family. So the next scene, we are in Edgar's trailer, which I think is kind of not his actually his actual living quarters, but where the office is, the office trailer. And Daniela is in there and her mother, Maria, comes in. And Maria's like, I was directed to a... Did she say like rat trap on wheels? Something like that, okay? (laughs) Something real disrespectful. And I was told that that was your home. And so Daniela describes and she's like, yes. Like, yeah, that's my home. Ray then walks in and says that Daniela's home is here. And Maria says, no, her home is wherever you are. Why aren't y'all back in New York with you working for me? 
And so Ray is like, listen, I do not want to work for you. And Maria's like, you are the number two graduate in your Harvard Business School class. Why are you doing this? And so Ray is like, why don't you go after the number one man in the class? And Maria's like, yeah, I thought about that, but he went into the banana business in Brazil. Plus, he's not married to my daughter. And clearly, Ray is not interested. Daniela is supporting her husband, even though she's had these conversations like, hey, maybe you need to work for my mom. This circus is failing. Let's get out when we can. Convince your father to sell. Even though they're doing that in the privacy of their relationship, she is not going to present anything except a united front in front of her mother. Props for that. Props for that. Now we just got to get behind the scenes and fix that, which will happen in time. So the next scene, we are at the elephant area. And Jessica goes in and she notices that there is a link that is almost completely cut through on the chains connecting the elephants. As she's coming out from the scene, well, from that specific area, uh, she bumps into Charlie and he's like, you got Carl arrested. And I'm like, wait a second. You should not be talking to your elders like that, son, okay? Now, I know your mother taught you better than that. I know that. And I know that Carl taught you better than that for a fact. Do not speak to this grown woman like that, sir. I don't like your tone, child. So (laughs) Jessica is like, well, you know, we have to figure out what happened. It's going to be okay. He isn't the one who did it. I'm here to help. And Katie walks up and she's like, yes, she is here to help. Carl told us about you, not by name, but talked about a sister-in-law that he, you know, loved and appreciated and was a good person. And so Jessica brings up the time of death And Katie says, oh, well, that would make us the last people to have seen him alive. Charlie's like, why are you telling her this? Don't tell our business. My father would never say anything. And so he then storms off because he is being a brat right now. Katie stays to speak with Jessica. And we find out from Katie that a lot of accidents have been happening lately, but Seeing this cut link in the chain makes it look, look like those were not, in fact, accidents, but done on purpose. And so she asks, like, do you think someone caught Hank cutting the link? And Jessica says, well, there's no hacksaw, so it must have been taken away by the murderer. But if they found that he was cutting the link, wouldn't they have reported it to prevent whatever this was supposed to accomplish, like injury, accident, death. And she's exactly right. Because even if the person ended up having to murder Hank to prevent him from sabotaging the circus any further, and they got into it because Hank is a super violent person, so this is believable, that they could anonymously report the cutting of the chain Or two, they would have left the hacksaw there so that it could be directly connected to Hank to say, oh, why is there a hacksaw here? Maybe they would have looked closer at the chain links holding the elephants together. So yeah, that is is true. So that comes into play later as to why the murderer did what he or she did. So the next scene, we have Brad speaking with Edgar. Edgar is trying to convince Brad to take Hank's place, but Brad says he does not want that. Now, we don't know if it's because of his fear in taking on that much responsibility or if there's another reason. 
there's another reason. We'll find out that reason (laughs) in the second half of this episode. So Brad walks away and Larry Kingman approaches Edgar. Basically, he wants to buy the circus now. He's like, or I could buy it in six months for pennies on the dollar when you go bankrupt. And Edgar's like, get out of here before I throw you out. Okay, that's what I need you to do for me right now. And Kingman then leaves. But we find out that Kingman is staying at the Ozark Inn. And if Edgar changes his mind, that's where he can find him. The next scene, we have Katie and Jessica speaking. And then Preston joins them. And we find out from Preston that... um, he doesn't believe it's Carl because Carl doesn't have a good enough motive. Now they all have a motive to have wanted to kill Hank, but Carl's was the bottom of the barrel. Like his was the least effective or least serious reason why he would want to kill Hank. Now, stepping aside to talk about that for a minute. In fact, he had a very good reason for wanting to kill Hank Because he was very, being Carl, was very protective of Katie. And if he found out that Hank had been harassing Katie, he would have, and threatening the son, he would have had reason enough to murder him. So his wasn't necessarily bottom of the barrel. Maybe that's all Preston knew. But if... He found out, if Carl found out what all Katie was going through with Hank, the monster, then he would have had a very good reason for murdering Hank. Jessica brings up the fact that um, a lot of them had come from Kingman's to Carmody. And Preston was like, yeah, you know, I knew Hank back when he was aroused about with Kingman. Now, stepping aside for a second on this one, right? This is the last scene, so I'll talk a little bit more about these specifics. He backed down. Preston backed down when Hank threatened to beat him up at the same time that Hank was abusing Maylene, right? When he had her face grabbed in his hand, And Preston said something. He was bold enough to say something. But when Hank threatened him, he shut up. So yes, he was intimidated by Hank, just like everybody else. So, you know, you can get off your high horse right here and let the horse go on on because you were just as intimidated as everyone else. But maybe a little less because you were bold enough to say something at first. But once it became clear that he would have no problems becoming violent with you, despite knowing him back in the day, you were like, oh, and I'm shutting up, which is not helpful. It's understandable, but it's not great. Jessica and Katie were heading towards Carl's trailer to see if Jessica could find anything that would help to exonerate Carl or meaning prove that he did not commit the murder. As they're getting ready to approach and having this conversation with Preston, the sheriff and one of his deputies walk up to the trailer and look in an outdoor planter and find the juggling pin that was missing they find it in there covered with blood and the sheriff says that Carl has confessed to murdering Hank and told them where they could find the murder weapon which they have just recovered in front of Jessica Katie and Preston and so Carl has already signed a confession And the camera pans to Jessica, who is in shock and confused, and to be continued. So (laughs) that is the end of episode one of Death Stalks the Big Top. Now, again, this is 
an episode, well, a set of episodes that I do watch often. And it's well acted. There are an abundance of terrible people. But again, it is a two-parter. So they can afford to have several terrible people. At the end of next week's episode, I will go through each of the characters and which ones were terrible and which ones I really liked. So (laughs) wait till then. But that's that on that. Another great episode to be continued next week, Sunday at 5 p.m. But before then, you can always catch me on Instagram at the Fletcher Files Pod on Instagram, on my Facebook page, the Fletcher Files Pod on Facebook. And of course, in the description box, there is a link to the Fletcher Files Pod on Patreon, which has a lot of great content in addition to these episodes as well as early access to these episodes. So get to it. Join the club, okay? (laughs) But until we meet again next Sunday at 5 p.m. for Death Stalks the Big Top Part 2, have an amazing week. Bye.